West Virginia is still dominating the college basketball headlines with Mo Wagee headed to Alabama and Jose Perez still looking for his next school. Where might he end up? We're going to discuss all that and more right here on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. You are Locked On College Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey folks, happy Friday. Welcome into the Locked On College Basketball Podcast, the only daily national college hoop show out there, part, of course, of the Locked On Podcast Network. I am your host, Andy Patton. Again, happy Friday. Got a great show coming up for you today. We're discussing Jose Perez's initial list of suitors as he finally decides to hit the transfer portal out of West Virginia. Talk about where he might fit best. We're also going to discuss Mo Wagee who has decided to go to Alabama, joining Nate Oates' team. What that means for Wagee, what that means for the Crimson Tide. We're going to close out the show and the week talking about the new look American Athletic Conference. Is Memphis the team to beat Florida Atlantic? We're going to talk about all that to close out the show. But first, Jose Perez. It has been a tumultuous college basketball career for Mr. Perez. I feel for him. We're going to talk about what has transpired for this young man throughout his college basketball career, why he's in the position that he's in. We're also going to talk about the four schools that have initially reached out to him. By the time you're listening to this, there may be a longer list. Heck, there's probably a lot of schools that are showing interest in Jose Perez. We're going to talk about those four. First of all, for those of you who are maybe not as familiar with Jose Perez's story and are thinking, hey, it's just another player from West Virginia entering the transfer portal it is. That is true. And of course, we have already seen Trey Mitchell enter the portal and go to Kentucky. We're going to talk more about Wiggy entering the portal and, of course, going to Alabama. West Virginia did keep Kirk Reese, so they did keep Jesse Edwards. So things are in okay shape there. They also lost Joe Toussaint to Texas Tech. My co-host Isaac Shade spoke about that on a recent episode of the show. But Perez is an interesting case. The six foot five combo guard. He started his college basketball career at Gardner Webb. He played two seasons there in 2018 19 and then in 2019 20. And he put up almost identical numbers in those first two seasons about 15 points per game, about six rebounds per game, about three and a half assists per game. Really, really productive numbers. Spent two years there, like we said. And of course, at that point, when you're a 15 point per game scorer, you're going to get some high major attention. He did, in fact, get attention from Marquette, ended up transferring to the Golden Eagles. Things didn't go as well there for him in the 2021 season. He only played 10 games, only played about 11 minutes per game, only averaged about three points. So at that point, he decided to transfer again, and he went to Manhattan, closer to his hometown. He grew up in the Bronx, getting to play in Manhattan. Exciting time for him, and he was one of the best low major players in all of college basketball. This was during the 2020. 122 season he averaged 33 minutes per game about 19 points four and a half assists still not a great three points was about 26 percent that is an area of his game that has been pretty inconsistent he shot 38 percent as a freshman and hasn't shot over i don't think 26 percent since then so definitely an area of some concern for at least some of the teams on this list who are who are considering him but after his one season at manhattan his coach gets fired And it happened really close to the start of the season, the kind of time when you don't normally see coaches lose their jobs. And Perez, along with a handful of other players from Manhattan, decided to enter the portal. They didn't want to play for a different coach. They they were upset that their coach didn't have his job anymore. This is pretty common. And typically, the NCAA grants waivers in these instances. 
Perez got an opportunity to go to West Virginia. Again, not surprising to see him jump back at the high major level after putting up 19 and five uh, at Manhattan. Bob Huggins gives him a chance at West Virginia, but unfortunately the NCAA somewhat surprisingly rules against Perez and does not allow him to play last season. So Perez spent the entire season on the bench for West Virginia with the Mountaineers, did not play in 2022-23, and then Bob Huggins loses his job. We've litigated a lot about what happened with Bob Huggins, of course. We don't need to get into that too much, but this is a really unfortunate situation for Perez. Things don't work out at Marquette. He goes to Manhattan. His coach gets fired. That's not his fault. He chooses to transfer because most players would choose to transfer under those circumstances doesn't get a waiver, doesn't get to play at West Virginia, finally feels like he's about to get his opportunity to play for a Big 12 school and for the coach he wanted to play for. And then Bob Huggins does what Bob Huggins did, and now Perez is once again looking for another school. I tell the story, A, because it's kind of a, a just a, a tragic story. I don't think – I think the NCAA probably shouldn't have ruled the way they did uh, regarding the Manhattan situation, but a lot of this is just kind of dumb luck. It's just bad luck for Jose Perez that this has happened. I know a lot of people will look at a player who has as many schools on their on their resume as Perez does and will think, oh, he must be a head case, blah, blah, blah. They'll, they'll, they'll want to assign blame to him. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know the ins and outs of how Jose Perez works and his all of that. I, I don't. But there are a lot of circumstances here that were outside of Perez's control. And I think that's important to acknowledge when looking at what I view as a, a really talented player who should thrive at the high major level if given an opportunity. And I am very clearly not alone in believing that he can be productive at the high major level because as soon as he was a name available in the transfer portal, the first two schools known to reach out to him, or at least reported that reached out to him were Gonzaga and Michigan. If you're getting attention from those two programs, it is clear that there is belief around the college basketball landscape that you are capable of playing at the Division I level and at a high level. Not just the Division I level, we know that, at a high major prolific level. Gonzaga and Michigan were the first two schools to reach out. The other two at the time of this recording that are known to be involved in the Jose Perez sweepstakes are Georgia Tech and Oregon. I just want to talk a little bit about each of those programs and the potential fit for Perez there while acknowledging that he may not end up at any of these schools. Cincinnati needs guards. Memphis needs guards. There are a ton of other programs out there that could use guards that may or may not show interest in Perez down the line. I don't know how quickly he's looking to get to his next school, but we're going to talk about these four programs in particular. For Gonzaga, Perez would, refer would be a Malachi Smith replacement. Malachi Smith did not return for what would have been his fifth year of eligibility. He decided to stay in the NBA draft process, sign an Exhibit 10 deal with the Portland Trailblazers, and kind of left Gonzaga with a bit of a hole in terms of a defensive presence third guard. Smith was the WCC sixth man of the year last year. This year, Gonzaga's got Ryan Nemhard running the point. They got Nolan Hickman playing probably an off-ball role. They got Steele Venters transfer from Eastern Washington, who's going to probably play the three, but they need some depth in their backcourt. Jose Perez would absolutely give them that if he was willing to play a slightly smaller role. I think he could be very valuable in their up-tempo, run-and-gun, get-out-and-go offense. He's a lot like Smith as a, a low-major player who was a 20-point-ish per game scorer. That's similar to who Malachi Smith was at Chattanooga. So there's a pretty obvious fit there. Michigan, of course, makes sense. They lost Kobe Bufkin to the NBA draft. They lost Caleb Love that they never really had, but they sort of had. <laughs> of course, there was the, the admission situation with Caleb Love, so they don't get the guard they wanted to get in the transfer portal. They lose Kobe Bufkin. 
they could use some extra guard depth. Now they got recently got good news. Sounds like Namari Burnett, the transfer from Alabama is going to be eligible to play for Michigan right away next season. Were that not the case, this team would be in much more dire straits. As it stands, they could still use a guard with Perez's experience. Uh, Michigan, a team that missed the NCAA tournament last year, despite having two players selected in the top 15 of the NBA draft. We'll see if Juwan Howard can turn things around. Adding a player like Perez with his experience and scoring ability would certainly help. Oregon is, is a bit of a curious fit, although I see why they might want somebody like this. They've lost a lot of guard wing players via the transfer portal. Quincy Guerriere went to Illinois. Rivaldo Soares went to Oklahoma. Locke Wurr went to Grand Canyon. He was more of a depth option, but still a, a player they lost. Tyrone Williams, one of the best Juco players, never really found it at Oregon, has now transferred to Old Dominion. And the response for Oregon was to add Devin Cambridge. Devin Cambridge uh, out of Auburn and then out of Arizona State came to Oregon for his final year of eligibility. But then as soon as he was there, he, he left. Very suddenly he ends up at Texas Tech with Grant McCasland. And Oregon's kind of out a wing option that they thought they were going to have. So it makes sense that they would pivot towards one of the best wing options that is available in the transfer right, right, portal right now in Jose Perez. And then Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech going through a coaching change, bringing in Damon Stoudemire. They lost eight players in the transfer portal. Not surprising when you see teams that haven't been very good that are also going through a coaching change. Tends to be a lot of overlap or, excuse me, turnover on those rosters. And that's the situation here with Georgia Tech. They lose Devon Smith. He goes to Utah. That's a really tough loss for them. They did add some talented players, Amari Abram from Ole Miss, Kawasi Reeves from Florida, but this is a team that could use more talent. They're not necessarily position-specific. They're not looking for a specific role the way that Gonzaga is. They just need talent to come into the program. Damon Stoudemire will figure it out after that. I have a lot of faith in Damon Stoudemire as a coach. I think this is a good fit for him to get this opportunity. He did a good job at Pacific, even if the results didn't look great. Uh, and it would be a really good heist for them, especially considering the schools that are also connected to Perez, if they could figure out a way to land him uh, for that program. Well, we're still talking about West Virginia transfers here. Moving on, we're going to talk about Mo Wagee, who signs on with Nate Oates and Alabama. What does that fit look like? But before we get into that, I want to tell you all about today's sponsor, FanDuel. Baseball season is in full swing, and there is no better place to get in on the MLB action than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers get a no-sweat first bet of up to $1,000. That's up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet does not win. Just go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to join today. Folks, the MLB All-Star Game is coming up next week in Seattle. FanDuel is going to have so many player props. If you want to bet on Shohei Otani to hit an, a home run in the All-Star Game, you want to bet on a scoreless inning from one of your favorite pitchers, whatever it may be, FanDuel has got you completely covered on that. So do not miss your chance to snag that no-sweat first bet of up to $1,000 when you join FanDuel today. Just go to FanDuel.com slash locked on to sign up. FanDuel, an official partner of Major League Baseball. All right, folks, I want to thank all of you for making the Locked On College Basketball Podcast your first listen or your first watch of the day. Shout out, of course, to those everyday listeners. We sincerely appreciate you taking in the show, whether you're doing it on YouTube, where you can go hit that subscribe button if you have not done so yet, or whether you're finding us on your other podcast platforms. 
We're wrap, wrapping up the show this week here, but of course, next week we got more transfer portal coverage because, folks, it is not done yet. Still more going on. We'll still talk some conference realignment. Uh, we'll get into some uh, team previews and all that good stuff as well. So stick with us here as we get into the month of July. But for right now, I want to talk about Mo Wagee because Mo Wagee was one of the many players, as we discussed previously, that left West Virginia to find a new school in the transfer portal. Wagee had a lot of options. I think as much as having your coach lose his job at that time in the offseason, one of the advantages for these West Virginia players who did want to explore other options is that there weren't a lot of high-profile players left in the portal. You know, we saw Paul Mulcahy go to Washington. He was one of the better players that was still available that wasn't a West Virginia guy. But most of these West Virginia players are kind of getting a lot of premier options because they're the best of the best that's left. That's kind of the situation that Jose Perez is in. It was sort of the position that that Mo Wagee was in. Wagee, looking at his numbers, doesn't jump off the page, but there's more to the story, of course. He was a six foot ten junior college forward who spent last year, of course, at West Virginia with the Mountaineers, his first season playing Division I basketball. He played in 28 games for Bob Huggins, 10.6 minutes per game. So he was a role player. Uh, he averaged about four points and three rebounds per game, as well as a half a block. He was insanely, capital I, insanely efficient. Again, sample size of a 10-minute-per-game guy who averaged four points. The sample size is small. So projecting him to continue to shoot this efficiently at a different level with a bigger role is probably silly. But Wiggy shot 74.2% from the field. Drew Timmy never did that. Trace Jackson Davis, Hunter Dickinson, Oscar Shibway, Armando Baycott, Zach Eady. These guys didn't do that. Again, they took way more shots per game than Mo Wiggie did. But still, for Alabama to add a player who in a, again, it's not a two-minute per game role, 10 minutes per game in the Big 12, who finished 75% of his shot attempts, that's a nice get. That's a nice haul. Now, Wiggy does not have any shot other than outside or right around the rim. He does not have a three-point shot. He doesn't have a mid-range game. Uh, he was 53.3% from the free throw line. So what you see is what you get with Wiggy. He is right around the rim. That is the role that he plays. That is the role that he is good at. And that is the role that I imagine Nate Oates and Alabama have in mind for him. They're not bringing him in to change him as a basketball player. They know what they have. They know what he is. And they're going to put him in that role. And it's a role, frankly, that Alabama needed to fill because they lost Charles Bediaco, one of the more surprising players to stay in the NBA draft process. We will see if it works out for Bediaco. I never root against somebody, but he did not get drafted as expected. We will see what that leads to, leads to for him going forward. But for Alabama, they lose Charles Bediaco when they already knew they were going to lose Noah Clowney. They, of course, already knew they were going to lose Brandon Miller, who wasn't really a forward, but still was size that this program lost as a six foot nine player. They lose Miller. They lose Noah Clowney. They lose Charles Bediaco. And for a while, they didn't really bring anybody in. Of course, they made their big splash a few weeks ago by landing Grant Nelson. Grant Nelson, the North Dakota State transfer, the unicorn, a six foot 10 player with uh, ball handling skills, outside shooting skills, albeit inconsistent, uh, low post scoring skills, shot blocking skills, a lot of the things that you would really want out of that kind of player, a Chet Holmgren light, as it were, for, for Grant Nelson. He goes to Alabama. 
think Nate Oates is going to have a really fun time figuring out how to to get him into the mix and play him and figure out his role defensively and offensively. But that was their big addition. They do bring in two four-star prospects who are both power forwards. They're six eight and six seven respectively. That would be Sam Walters and Mohamed Diubate. And I think those guys are solid, and I think there's a chance that they could play. But Alabama didn't want to rely on six foot eight power forward freshmen to be backup centers. They just, I don't think that that was a role that was really going to be all that conducive for them. Now, they do have Nick Pringle. And a lot of the belief and our friend and uh, regular guest on the podcast, Leif Tulin of the Locked On NBA Big Board, spoke about this when Betty Ako initially entered the draft. And he effectively said, I think that Nick Pringle sort of pushed him out. And he, did, he, he didn't go as far to say it was the same as the Philip Petrusev, Drew Timmy situation at Gonzaga or the Adama Sonogo, Donovan Klingon situation at UConn. But he said, like, Pringle is going to have a bigger role next year. He's going to be a, a focal point for this team offensively. And it might have made Charles Bediaco not look as appealing to NBA teams. I think that was the general gist of Leafs conversation. And so Pringle's a guy now, especially with Bediaco not in the mix, who's going to play a lot. So you have Nick Pringle, you have Grant Nelson, you have the two freshmen coming in, but you needed a little bit more. You needed somebody who's going to give you some 10 to 15 minutes of grunt work, who's going to push guys around, roll to the rim, block some shots, do that. That's exactly who Mo Wagee is. And that's exactly what role I think that the Crimson Tide can count on him for, count on from him. He averaged per 40 minutes which those numbers are extrapolating out, especially for a guy who only played 10 minutes per game, leads to some wonky numbers. But per 40, Wagi averaged about two blocks per game. He also averaged about 13 fouls per game, hence the, uh, the, the point that these numbers don't always uh, translate all that well. So he's going to have to work on that. He's going to have to work on controlling his body, not committing fouls, not being a step slow. The SEC is tough. A lot of talented players in that conference. But if Wiggy and Grant Nelson can both kind of be adequate rim protectors uh, and good low post scores, more, more in Wiggy's case, Nelson obviously has more of an ability to stretch the floor. But I think this is a good fit for Wiggy. And I think it's a good fit for Alabama. They needed somebody to fill that role. They lost a lot of depth in the front court. They also lost a lot of depth in the backcourt. Javon Quinterly surprise entrance to the transfer portal. They lose Jaden Bradley to Arizona. Namari Burnett goes to Michigan. Some tough losses for this team. They do return Mark Sears. They return Ryland Griffin. They add two guard transfers in Aaron Estrada, who is a 20-point-per-game score at Hofstra. They add Latrell Wrightsell from Cal State Fullerton. He was a very solid player there. So I think they have the makings of a team that's going to compete for an SEC championship next season. They do. Arkansas is probably a little ahead of them right now, at least in my rankings. I'm not sold on Kentucky, although I'm happier, or I think that they should be happier having added Antonio Reeves back and getting Trey Mitchell from West Virginia. And I think, I think Alabama's kind of right in that conversation. It'll be interesting to see how Oates put all the, puts all the pieces together. Some really talented players coming into the program, some guys who fit obvious roles like Wagee. So I think that this is a situation where Alabama is going to be back in that conversation. Are they going to be a number one seed, uh, you know, appear to have an easy path to the Elite Eight, all that stuff? I don't know. Maybe not that. Maybe they won't be quite there. They lost a lot of talent from last year's team. But I wouldn't count out Nate Oates in this team just yet. And I think Wagee is the kind of player they needed to add it, to add to make me feel even more confident about what their season could look like next year. 
Well, my co-host Isaac Shade introduced the new Big 12 programs earlier this week. So today I'm going to take a look at what that all means for the American Athletic Conference. And we're going to discuss if Memphis is still the team to beat. More on all that coming up right after this. All right, folks, segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on college basketball, closing out the show and the week here discussing the American Athletic Conference, the AAC, one of the better non-Power 6 basketball conferences in America. And I think it'd be easy to look at the teams that they lost and think, man, that is not a conference that's going to be nearly as good as they were in the past. But here's the thing. I don't think that's the case because the comp- the teams that they added from Conference USA are really tremendous. Just as a reminder, July 1st was the first day of the new academic year. That's why we're talking about this stuff now because it is official, 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 officially official that BYU and Houston and Cincinnati and Central Florida are all now in the Big 12 Conference. BYU, of course, coming from the WCC. Houston, Cincinnati, and Central Florida all coming from the American Athletic Conference. That's three really good programs. In fact, using Ken Palm's end-of-season rankings, which, yes, are a snapshot in time. Ken Palm's rankings right now are just a look at where every team finished at the end of the most recent college basketball season. Things are going to be different. Teams have changed. Their rosters are, some in some cases, dramatically different. But it is a good starting point for looking at what the talent level is in this new conference that loses three programs and gains six. They will be a 14-team conference for next season. Houston was number two. Most of the season, they were number one, or at the very least, top three, pretty much all year long. Of course, Houston did lose a lot of talent as they head into the Big 12. They lose Marcus Sasser, they lose Jairus Walker, but they bring in LJ Cryer from Baylor. Uh, It's going to be a really solid program. Losing Houston is obviously devastating for the AAC. A really tough, I mean, it's as close to an equivalent of like what would happen to the WCC if they lost Gonzaga. Like it's truly that level of tough for this team. Now they haven't had as sustained success as Gonzaga has, but their recent success has been tremendous. They also lose Cincinnati, who finished the season 50th in the Ken Palm rankings, and Central Florida, who finished 56th. So three top 55, top 60 teams in college basketball at the end of the season all depart the American Athletic Conference. But, but the conference did a tremendous job of replacing that talent on the men's basketball side. First of all, they add Florida Atlantic. Florida Atlantic, the darlings of last season. The plucky underdog nine seed that went all the way to the dang final four, a team that probably shouldn't have been seeded as a nine seed in the first place, considering their regular season dominance in Conference USA. Of course, we didn't know how dominant Conference USA would look until we got into the playoffs. Florida Atlantic goes all the way to the Final Four. They return everybody. Elijah Martin, John L. Davis are back. That starting lineup is back. Dusty May, their head coach is back. This is a team that finished 17th in the Ken Palm rankings. The AAC also adds North Texas and UAB, Alabama-Birmingham. Those two programs were 31st and 47th, respectively. So both still ahead of Cincinnati, again, in the end-of-season Ken Palm rankings. They also played each other in the NIT championship. So Florida Atlantic went all the way to the Final Four, and UAB and North Texas beat everybody in the NIT until they had to play each other 
And North Texas managed to win that game. That was why they finished 31st in the Ken Palm rankings. So again, AAC loses three premier programs, add, adds a final four program in FAU, your NIT champion in North Texas, and your NIT runner-up in UAB. They also had Charlotte, who finished 106th in the Ken Palm rankings and also won the CBI. This is a team or a conference now full of playoff champions, teams that proved they can win in March. Not all at the NCAA level. I'm not going to pretend that winning the CBI or finishing second in the NIT is equivalent to success in the NCAA tournament, but I would want them in my conference if I had a mid-major conference like uh, like the AAC. Would be pretty thrilled to add all those programs. The other two programs they add not as much basketball success. That's Rice and UTSA, schools that probably are more fits in a football perspective than a basketball perspective. Uh, Rice has had some success in the past. It's more of just getting into Texas and having markets in Houston and San Antonio area. But still, six new programs coming in to the American Athletic Conference replacing a really tough loss in Houston and frankly, tough losses in Cincinnati and central Florida too. Those are two solid basketball programs. So three tough losses, three really good programs coming in in FAU, North Texas and UAB. And I think solid programs in Charlotte rice and UTSA as well. They add into a mix that includes returnees in Memphis who finished the season 20th in Ken Palm Wichita State, who's obviously had some recent success, although finished 102nd last year. Tulane, one spot behind them at 103. Temple at 120. South Florida at 145. And then a couple bottom feeders, East Carolina, who again has had some success in the past as well. They were 180th in Ken Palm. SMU 183rd. We'll see how long they stick. They are, of course, heavily rumored to be joining the Pac-12 and in, when the Pac-12 does anything, they haven't done anything yet, so uh, not going to hold our breath on that one necessarily. And then Tulsa, who finished 316th, the clear and obvious bottom feeder of the AAC at this point. So the question becomes now, the conversation when Houston left was, wow, this is definitely just Memphis's conference. Again, I'll compare it to the WCC of like, well, if Gonzaga ever leaves, St. Mary's is just going to roll through this conference every single year. I don't know that Memphis is in that position. Because you add a Florida Atlantic right now, for, for those of you who are everyday listeners, who've listened to Isaac and I routinely do our, our updated top 10 projections for next year, Florida Atlantic is pretty often in there. They're considered a potential top 10 team going into next year. Memphis is not. That doesn't mean Memphis won't win the AAC. That doesn't mean Florida Atlantic, you know, is going to finish the top 10 team necessarily, but Memphis is not going to just get this easy path to win the AAC because of Houston's departure. Memphis and Florida Atlantic to me are the top two teams in this conference and watching them play different styles of basketball. It's going to be very fun. It's going to be very, very fun to see those two teams go at it. Memphis added David Jones from St. John's. That's a huge addition for them. They add Jordan Brown from Louisiana. They really needed that depth up in the front court. Caleb Mills from Florida State. Jalon Young from UCF, among others. That's not all the additions they made. Those are just some of the key ones. They do lose both the Lawsons. Chandler Lawson goes to Arkansas. Jonathan Lawson goes to Creighton. Uh, and they're still looking for another guard. And again, part of this conversation is we don't know exactly what all these rosters are even going to look like because if Memphis adds Javon Quinterly, which is rumored, it might have happened by the time you're listening to this. It is a, a, a hot rumor right now as I'm recording. If they add Javon Quinterly or if they pivot and go after somebody like Jose Perez or any of the other guards in the portal, that could change the equation a little bit for Penny Hardaway's team. 
So for me, Memphis does have a clearer path in the sense that Houston is not this dominant force that went 33 and four last year that just proved they're capable of winning that conference. I don't want to say easily, but fairly easily. Memphis is not going to have that same path. It's not going to be as easy for them to dominate the AAC because not only Florida Atlantic, they're the the biggest competitor right now. I think clearly, again, if if you're looking at just the returners, just the returners, Memphis finished in Ken Palm 20th, Wichita State was second at 102nd. So Memphis is kind of light years ahead of the rest of the returning teams in the AAC. But FAU is right in that conversation. North Texas is right in that conversation. And UAB is right in that conversation. I wouldn't be surprised if those three schools finish in the top four for the AAC next year. Those three schools and Memphis are probably your top four teams. And there's a lot of different orders it could potentially happen in. This is going to be a really fun, fascinating conference to watch. I mourned a little bit on on an episode earlier this week, the kind of the fall of Conference USA, the fact that they had this tremendously successful season with the, you know, NCAA Final Four team, two NIT champion or two NIT champions and runner-up, and as well as a CBI champion, and they lose all of those teams. That's a really tough look for a Conference USA. They add New Mexico State, a program that has had historic success but was a complete dumpster fire last year. Hopefully, the, that's a program that can turn things around. They add Sam Houston State out of the whack as well, but a conference that had its probably pinnacle for college basketball, men's college basketball at least, and then kind of watched it all disappear. That's the nature of conference realignment of college athletics. That's just the nature of the game right now. Money talks. Schools are getting these opportunities left and right to do this. And, you know, this had been announced prior to this happening, so it's not like Conference USA didn't know this was going to happen, but watching all those teams have that level of success, knowing they weren't going to be around the next year, That's a tough pill to swallow. That's a tough pill for the Conference USA folks. But I think the American Athletic Conference is going to be one of the most intriguing and fascinating conferences to watch next year. And I think people who are more casuals might just think, oh, well, Memphis is going to start running away with that conference. And I'm I'm not so sure. I'm not sure that not only are they not going to run away with it next year, I don't think they're I don't, I don't think they're going to win it. I would pick Florida Atlantic right now if I was picking each team's uh, each conference's potential winner. I'm going to take the Owls. Memphis is probably second, but they're right. North Texas, UAB are in that conversation as well. Of course, North Texas loses their coach. Uh, they also lose their star player in Tyler Perry, transfers to Kansas State. So again, have to do a deeper dive on some of these rosters to get a better sense of what these teams are going to look like next year. But Memphis versus Florida Atlantic is going to be a very, very fun battle for the winner of the new look American Athletic Conference in the 2023-24 college basketball season. Well, that is going to do it for me today and for us this week here on the Lockdown College Basketball Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend. And until next time, peace out.